Now, as we look at Galatians 3, this passage of Scripture from verse 15 through verse 25, here is, in fact, the issue. The issue is, if we are saved by grace through faith, then what role does the law have in the Christian life? Right? If we are um, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then what role does the law have in the Christian life? Some will uh, today tell us that it has no role, that it has no place, that you can discard much of what you find, in fact, in the Old Testament because it is outdated, outmoded, and not necessary. So what role then, if we are saved by grace, does the law have? Uh, To ask it another way, does grace found in Christ nullify our need for obedience? Of course not. Does the call to obey show that in some way God's grace is insufficient? Of course not. So if the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, then we really don't need the law. Or do we? This text is begging the question, what is the relationship between God's promise of the gospel that goes all the way back to Abraham and the law that was given or mediated through Moses? So that's the question that this text addresses. Now remember what we've already learned in our study of the book of Galatians. We're studying a letter of the Apostle Paul written to a group of churches that are in the Lycus River Valley of what is today southern Turkey, right? And so Paul is writing to a letter that would be basically sent from Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Right, And the issue is uh, the gospel of Christ has come in. The churches have been established. Paul established these churches. He visited them and established them and appointed leaders there in his first missionary journey. He comes back on his second missionary journey. He even travels there on his third missionary journey. And it's one of the earliest letters. In fact, Galatians and James are about the earliest letters, the earliest works of the New Testament. And so, uh, once the church has been established, a group of people called the Judaizers have crept into the church. And they are now saying to these people that are worshiping every week, it's great that you believe in Jesus. We celebrate that you believe in Jesus. We rejoice that you believe in Jesus. Now, in order to be a true follower and in order to be a true representative of the covenant community, it is imperative that you be circumcised and that you obey the law. That is the issue that Paul is addressing. 
So in chapter 1, he has already told them, I'm astonished, I'm shocked that you have abandoned what I have told you, how you came to faith in Christ, what was originally established for you, and now you're turning to another gospel. He calls it a different gospel, which in reality is not a gospel at all. And so these false teachers are basically saying Christianity is faith plus works. And so the Galatian Christians are extremely confused. And Paul is writing to set the record straight. He is addressing what was prominent in the early church and in many ways what is still prominent today, and that is legalism, right? That is an individual who believes that their efforts are somehow going to help them attain eternal life, a right standing before God. In fact, theologians will tell us today that legalism is one of the greatest dangers in the life of the church today. One pastor writes and says, legalism is a greater menace to the church than alcoholism. Alcoholics are in a tragic bondage and we must do all that we can to help. But legalism is more subtle and more pervasive and in the end more destructive. Satan clothes himself as an angel of light and makes the very commandments of God his base of operations. And the human heart is so proud and so unsubmissive that it often uses religion and morality to express its own rebellion. So our question today, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? And that's what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning. Let me walk through this before we come to the Lord's table today. First of all, it's important that we know that the law was not given to replace grace. Right? The law was not given to replace grace. Paul has made it crystal clear that the gospel is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul knows that the Judaizers are teaching circumcision as a necessary work for a person to be found righteous. And so now Paul has come along and says, you need Jesus plus nothing in order to be accepted by God. And so the Judaizers are saying, hey, Paul has brought this major change to the table. And so the issue that's implied in verses 15 through 19, the question that is implied in verses 15 through 19 is this, why then, if Paul is correct, that salvation is Jesus plus nothing, right? Why then did God require Israel to follow the law and be circumcised 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham? That's the question that the first part of the text addresses. The Judaizers are arguing that pre-law Abraham received righteousness because he was circumcised, right? So you have to follow their logic. 
Since circumcision is the sign of the covenant between God and His people, then that means circumcision is the grounds of justification. And so what Paul does in Galatians is to show us how people who are sinners can be saved. So what he says is that if even a man-made covenant is made, and as a result you don't go back and change it or break it, what about a covenant that God makes? What about a God-made covenant? That is an even greater binding covenant. And then Paul says the covenant that we need to be paying to, uh, paying attention to is not the covenant with Moses or the law, but it is the covenant with Abraham. Okay, so just so it's clear for us, what is the covenant that God made with Abraham? We can find it in Genesis 22. In verse 17, God says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offering shall possess the gate of his your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed so the promise god made to abraham this promise came before the requirements of the law. And Paul says it cannot be changed. God gave Abraham the gospel long before he ever gave Moses the law. Right? Because Paul says his offspring is Christ. The gospel, the promise that God gave Abraham... Dear ones, it was always about Jesus. Always about Jesus. Look at verse 16. Right Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Don't you see that God's intention all along was to save us through the gift of his son. And Paul is saying in response to the Judaizers claim that Paul is bringing something new. Paul is simply saying, oh no, no. Abraham didn't make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham and it is a covenant of grace and it is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That has always been how we are redeemed. It's the way it is now. It's the way it was in the beginning. And it will never change. So Paul makes it clear. This is not some New Testament invention. It's always been that way right from the very beginning. It has always been about grace. And we know that. right? Ephesians 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Right? And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Today, it seems that everything in life is based on performance. Right? If you go to school, you get grades based on your tests 
and your papers. Right? If you work, you get reviewed based on your performance. We are hardwired to judge ourselves based on what we do. Brett Favre, the holder of many NFL passing records, the three-time MVP, a ten-time All-Pro, a Super Bowl champion, said this, You're only as good as your last pass. You're only as good as your last pass. And that's the way we're tempted to live. You're only as good as your past, your last deed. You're only as good as the last thing that you did. As if our performance, right, changes the bar in terms of how a person enters the presence of God. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, says, Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. The law was never given to replace grace. The law was given to point us to our only hope. Now, if that is the case, people in the churches of Galatia, particularly Judaizers, are saying, now Paul, if that is the case, then what good is the law? Right? What was the law given for in the first place? And Paul spends, from verses 19 and following, time answering that question. Last week, as many of you know, I was headed to Kentucky to check on my mom. She's dealing with some health issues, and so I got up early Wednesday morning, got in the car, and I'm headed to Kentucky. And when I go, I just about always will drive um, up to Gadsden and get on Interstate 59, you know, and then I head to Chattanooga, and then I get on 24, and I cross Mont Eagle and go up through Nashville. And when I get to Bowling Green, I take the Natcher Parkway, and I head north up towards Owensboro and Henderson. About 40 miles on the parkway, I get off on Highway 69. I drive about 17 miles through the big city of Dundee. In fact, when you drive through Dundee, if you're following a GPS, my wife and I did this one time just to see how far it would take us. And when we got to Dundee, it went blank. <laughs> All right. So that's the country where Fordsville is, is found. Anyway, I'm, I'm driving along, you know, on I-24. I've already crossed Mont Eagle, and I'm probably 20 miles short of Murfreesboro, and I'm just kind of cruising along. And, and by the way, the, the, the speed limit on the interstate is 70 miles an hour. And if you're a Southern Baptist, you know that those speed limits are really just guidelines anyway, right? I mean, that's what they're there for. So I'm just kind of cruising along, and I'm headed down the road, and all of a sudden I just, just glance, you know, in my rearview mirror, and what do I see but a patrolman? Now, I do the exact same thing, and if you'll admit it, you'll know it. I do the exact same thing that you do. When you look in the rearview mirror or even on the side of the road and you see a patrolman, first thing you do, you immediately look down and see how fast you're going. Can I get a testimony today? All right, thank you. I'm glad I'm not alone. So I immediately check my speed. I have a tendency when I'm driving on a long route, I just kind of slop 
down, you know, in the seat a little bit. I mean, if I can see across the dashboard onto the road, I'm good to go. And so what do I do? I take my foot off the gas. I set up in my seat. And where do the hands go? Ten and two. All right? If I've got a phone in my hand, it immediately just drops to the floorboard. I don't even care where it goes. Ten and two. And we all have a tendency to do that. Why? Is it because police officers are there to remind us that there is a law that governs interstate driving and there are consequences if you break that law? Why was the law given? Take a pencil, if you have it in your Bible, and circle two words. Because this, these two words, answer the question for us. Two words. In verse 22, circle the word imprisoned. Imprisoned. And in verse 24, circle the word guardian or tutor. Depending on what translation you're reading from. These two words show us what the law does. First of all, the law shows us our sin. Paul says the law is like a prison. In other words, it exposes the evil of our hearts. And then it holds us captive as the lawbreakers that we really are. The law was given, dear ones, to expose our sin. But mark this, it cannot erase our sin. In other words, the law was given to define righteousness. It was never given for the purpose of delivering righteousness. The law is like a prison. It reveals the condition of our sinful hearts so that we can see what's wrong with us. Paul says the law cannot make us right with God. It can only imprison us. Now, I believe that confession is good for the soul. So here I go. I have served as your pastor for almost 13 years now. I guess I should have shared this before. I probably should have made this clear with the pastor search committee before I came. So here I go. I've been in prison before. And my crime was thinking that I could obtain a right standing before God on my own. Some of you are like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Listen, what Paul is saying is that every one of us have been in prison. Every one of us. The law is like a prison. Because what it does is it holds up a standard of absolute perfect righteousness. And it is a standard that no man, no woman can ever live up to. 
And so what it does, by holding up the standard of God's character, of God's righteousness, of God's holiness, right? What it does is it reveals to us the depth of our depravity, the depth of our sin. And it imprisons us, it locks us in, it holds us captive. So what happens to someone who has their sin exposed? Well, the law shows us our sin and the law shows us our Savior. See, the Bible says that the law is like a school tutor, a guardian. It disciplines us until we come to Jesus. Now, to explain this, in wealthy Greek families, on the era in which Paul wrote, children would be raised by guardians. They'd be raised by tutors from the age of six to about the age of 13. And the purpose of that tutor was to discipline and train. The relationship was close. The relationship was disciplinary. And the relationship was temporary because when, let's say, a young lad would reach, uh, let's say, age 13, then that lad would be released from that guardian. That lad would be released from that school tutor and allowed to go his own way. And Paul is simply taking that image and showing us that the law was always given for a temporary purpose. To point us to Jesus. Dear ones, the law is not contrary to the gospel. The law always anticipates the gospel. The law is not opposed to the gospel. The law was given for the purpose of pointing us to the gospel of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Let me quote one of my favorite uh, theologians. And his commentary on Galatians, by the way, is one of the best that you will find. John Stott writes, and he says, and listen to this carefully, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit the need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we ever turn to the gospel that can raise us to heaven. The law exposes our sin. And the law points us to Jesus. In 1988, the Chicago Cubs um, traded for Vance Law. Vance Law, uh, who had been something of a journeyman, was a really good third baseman. And so they um, uh, traded for Vance Law and started him at third base. It wasn't long after that, sometime later that summer from their farm system, they called up a new first baseman by the name of Mark Grace. And so here they stood on opposite corners. 
So when a batter would smash the ball down the third baseline, Law would knock it down and fire it to Grace to retire the side. Philip Ryken, in pointing to this image, reminds us that the Law and the Grace are not opponents. They are teammates working together for the salvation of God's people. The Law leads us to our only hope. And our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me close before we come to the table. What is the application of this text for us? First, the law reveals God's character. It shows us who God is. His righteousness. His holiness. The law exposes our sin. It shows us how sinful we are. Third, the law directs us to our only hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so finally, in Christ, we are called to obey. We are called to obey not as a means of salvation. We are called to obey in response to the salvation we have received. So why do we obey the Word of God? Why do we strive to, let's say, honor and obey the Ten Commandments? This is why, dear ones. This is why you do not eradicate one portion of the Word of God. But this is why you see that the Word of God all fits neatly together. And it always, on every page, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's my question for you. Right now today, right where you are seated, are you living a life under the law? Are you trying to obtain a right standing before God on your own? Do you think God will see your good deed you did yesterday and take you to heaven as a result? Dear ones, please, if that is you, submit your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and trust in Him for eternal life. Because I'm either under the law or I am in Christ Jesus. What about you? Where are you today?